Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as secretary of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Dr. Gammon Earhart, director of the physical therapy program and professor of physical therapy at Washington University in St. Louis. We are very excited to have Dr. Earhart here today to talk about her article, Mental Singing Reduces Gait Variability More Than Listening to Music for Healthy Older Adults and People with Parkinson's Disease. And I'd just like to note that this article won the Golden Synapse Award this past year. And so we're very excited to have her here to talk with us. So welcome, Gammon. And just please give us a little bit of an overview of what you're up to and what you do on a day-to-day basis. Thank you for that warm welcome. It's great to be here. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we do uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Our research team has been focused primarily on research, working with people who have Parkinson's for 16 years now. And we really want to do everything from understand the very basic changes that are going on in the brain when someone has Parkinson's disease and how their brain changes over time, but then be able to relate that to their physical function. And particularly, we're interested in walking in balance. And as we understand more, we can then develop novel strategies to try to intervene and help people to improve their walking and balance and hopefully ultimately be able to either change the brain in a way that's helpful or utilize areas in the brain that sort of take detours around the parts that are most impacted by the disease so that they can still walk more effectively. So we've been exploring things all the way from neuroimaging, looking at what's going on in the brain up to clinical trials, looking at the impacts of different interventions on function and trying to relate those things for a number of years. This particular line of study looking at singing has only been going on for the past three or four years in our group though. Okay, so before we get into that, I just wanna ask you if you could describe a little bit about your setup there in terms of, do you, you have a lab, it sounds like, and you know what's the size and how many people do you have that work with you on this stuff? Cause you guys are pretty prolific. It's super exciting to see the work that comes out of there. It would be great to have a nice sense of what the setup is like. Yeah, so our team consists of usually somewhere between 10 and 12 members at any given time. So there's myself, Ryan Duncan, who's an associate professor in the department, mm-hmm. also a physical therapist, uh, Carrie Rawson, who's a senior scientist who has a PhD in gerontology. We have Martha Hessler, who's a full-time research coordinator And then we usually have several PhD students at any given time, usually one or two postdocs. And then we also have some DPT students who serve more in a work-study capacity because they're usually in class. But when they're free, they can come in and help out with things like data entry and processing. Mm -hmm. And have one or two undergraduates usually who are looking to do some sort of honors thesis project in a lab. Mm Great. So that sounds busy, like a lot to coordinate, but I'm sure super fun and exciting. And are you teaching as well? 
Yes, I teach in the DPT curriculum. I'm in charge of the neuroscience course. And then I do various other guest lectures in different courses throughout the remainder of the curriculum that also focus on neurological issues. But my teaching chunk is in the very first semester of the curriculum for the neuroscience foundational course. Mm -hmm. And then what about clinical practice? Are you practicing clinically at all at this point? I am not practicing clinically now. I've found it's difficult to balance research, teaching, administration, and clinical practice all at once. Yeah, I kind of do not do clinical practice, but stay in close touch with other members of our department who are engaged in clinical practice. And oftentimes, you know, by bouncing ideas back and forth with those folks, we come up with better questions that are more relevant to the issues that people are facing or that therapists are finding challenging to address. Right. And that gets a little bit to why we at the DDSIG really found this article so interesting is that clinical relevance, which I think is great to have in these papers that are coming out. So tell us a little bit about like, how did you guys come up with this idea of looking at mental singing versus either music listening or just singing singing? So we actually started out comparing listening to music to singing aloud and we didn't consider mental singing. Uh, we started out with music because that's a very common technique to use either music or a metronome to try to help with pacing of gait and improve gait. And there have been many studies of that. Right. But, but the idea for singing really came from Ellie Harrison, who was a PhD student in the lab at, a time, at the time, and she had a background as a professional artist, both a dancer and a singer, mm -hmm. back to graduate school. And in her training, she had learned that making certain verbalizations in conjunction with movement would actually enhance the quality of the movement. So if you're making a slow, graceful movement, making a sighing sound that goes along with it, for example, a sound that matches the movement you're trying to make. Mm -hmm. Had this idea that maybe we could apply that same sort of concept to gait. And if we could have people sing while they were walking, it may be similarly effective to listening to this external rhythm that's coming from music. So that's where we started. And that very early study was really just, is this even feasible? Can people sing and walk at the same time? Or is it like the proverbial walking and chewing gum? Or is it going to be a dual task situation and make people's walking actually worse? Right. Or is it going to be helpful? So that's really was the first question. And as we explored that and compared listening to a song to singing that same song, we found very similar changes in terms of people's ability to you know, walk more consistently and more effectively. And actually, we're a little bit surprised that it seemed like the singing might have been a little bit more effective in the consistency domain. So making their gait less variable than when they're trying to match to this external cue coming from the music. Mm -hmm. So that was encouraging and made us want to explore it more. But we realized that, you know, from a practical standpoint, you can't walk down the street singing aloud. Or right. Other certain situations where you need to walk effectively, singing aloud is probably not going to be socially acceptable. Right. Well, I have to tell you that I really, I like that work a lot and I adopted it, including the row, row, row your boat aspect of it. 
And I work in a hospital. And so when I see people in the hospital, sometimes, especially people with Parkinson's that are hospitalized for whatever the reason is that brings them in just that hospital setting and being out of their regular routine and, you know, maybe missing some meds and whatever, they're just, they're, they're generally a mess in the way that they move. And so I have been known on multiple occasions to walk down the hallway with my patients, but both of us singing row, row, row your boat. And I feel like, yes, you can get away with it in a hospital hallway, but you're probably not going to want to walk down main street singing row, row, row your boat. So, um, and so that was your impetus for looking at mental singing. Yeah. And we thought that maybe the actual production of the sound wasn't the important piece, but the production of the, the rhythm. Mm-hmm. still generate internally while you're just singing the song in your head without actually the vocalization. So that was this particular study was the first one where we said, okay, how does singing in your head compare to singing aloud? And can you see those same improvements without actually making the sound? And it turned out that yes, you could. And that people were very easily able to, to do this task, which again, we also wondered, is this more complex than singing out loud? Is it going to be more difficult? And it didn't appear to be. You know, everybody would practice the song just while they were sitting first to make sure they knew it. But it's, again, a very familiar song, which I think helps. And it also has a really salient beat. Mm-hmm. Not difficult to pick that rhythm out and align with it. Mm-hmm. All right. So I'd like to dive in a little bit more specifically into what you did. So there were blocks of practice. How did those blocks look? For people that came into the lab? Yeah, so people came in and we first just measured their standard walking without any music or singing, just to figure out, you know, how quickly do they normally walk, how many steps per minute do they usually take, those types of things. And then we actually used that steps per minute or cadence to adjust the song tempo to match their gait. Okay, and you called that uncued, right? That was the uncued. That was that was uncued, yeah. So just, you know, how how would you just walk if you were told go ahead and walk comfortably? Mhm. Okay. And so then we would match the song to their preferred cadence and then also adjust it 10% lower or 10% higher to see, you know, could they scale their walking pattern as we changed the tempo? And then in addition to that, for each tempo, they also listened to the song and walked to that music or sang the song aloud, trying to match that particular tempo and walked or sang the song in their head, trying to match that tempo and walked while mentally singing. So did you have everybody do all of those? Yes. So everybody did all the conditions, but it was randomized. Mm -hmm. They got them in different orders of presentation. Mm -hmm. any practice effects would be washed out by the fact that not everybody listened first and then sang and then sang in their head but some people started off singing in their head Mm -hmm. okay and you looked at both people with parkinson's and healthy older adults correct yeah we did because we know that just with general aging we see some declines in walking functions so we thought Maybe this is a technique that older people might find effective, mm-hmm. help them walk more effectively or more quickly, but also wanted to know, you know, if it is effective for people who are older who don't have Parkinson's, is there any change in ability to use these techniques 
among people who do have Parkinson's or is it just as effective as their age match peers? Mm -hmm. And you looked specifically at velocity and cadence and then a few other things, right? Stride length. Yeah, velocity, cadence, and stride length to kind of assess the basic characteristics. And then we also looked at variability of stride length, stride time, and single support time to see not only are they walking faster, are they taking fewer or more steps, are they taking bigger or smaller steps, but how consistent are they from one step to another across an entire period of walking. Mm -hmm. And how far were they walking in these conditions? They were not walking very far, so they were walking across a gate right, so the instrumented walkway that we have in the lab, and it's only about 15 feet long. Okay. So they were walking from one end of that to the other, but they did that multiple times, and then we put all the data together. Did people know beforehand? I'm just curious if they were going to that they were going to be singing out loud. I don't think they necessarily all understood that. Because <laughs> <laughs> the study about singing and you know how it might influence walking and music and how it might influence walking. But as we were collecting the data, a few people seemed surprised that they had to sing aloud in front of us. Right. Yeah. Cuz they all did it. They all did it. So. Right. <laughs> It's one reason that I sing with my patients because I feel like it makes them more comfortable singing in what you know is essentially a public space is where we right. are often. Yeah, I like that idea. So how do you match your tempo to their tempo when you're singing with them? Do you let them start and then you try to go along? No, I usually kind of set the pace based on okay. how they're walking. You know, Great. I kind of use their cadence as we're going and I, I start singing, I am not gonna sing for you now. But <laughs> But that's, that's kind of how I do it. It feels pretty natural, actually. And again, you know, I'm, it's often people that are pretty impaired and going pretty slowly, but it seems to work fairly well mm -hmm. most of the time when I do it. You know, I, I would like to embrace the mental singing, but sometimes it's just fun to sing with people too. So, right. um, yeah. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what you found within these different areas. So, so maybe we just take velocity first. Did you okay. see a difference in the different conditions? Yeah, we did, and it was about what you would expect. So when we decreased their number of steps per minute by 10%, their velocity was about 10% slower. And when we increased by 10%, their velocity increased by about 10%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a difference that the people without Parkinson's were still walking more quickly than the people with Parkinson's, but both groups were similarly able to scale from their baseline, mm -hmm. appropriately match the cue. And so even when they were singing themselves or mentally singing, so more internal cueing, you started them out at that slower pace if they were doing the 90% and they were able to maintain that slower pace or faster pace right. for the entire trial. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. Cause that was one of the questions I had, like, would people just, especially if you started them out a little faster, would they just naturally slow down with time? Mm -hmm. But it seems like they didn't in your study. Yeah, but to be fair, they were walking short distances. Right. So, and they got a refresher, so they would hear the song at the correct tempo and then it would go off. And then they would start mentally singing it and walking. Mm -hmm. So it may be that 
you know, you do need to, to boost the memory every once in a while, because I do think that a certain song has a certain tempo associated with it in our minds. Right. You know, like when you learn CPR, they say, oh, you staying alive because, right. so, but if I told you to do staying alive very slowly, I do think, you know, I would have a tendency to sort of regress toward the normal tempo. Right. So that's why some of the work that we're doing in follow up to this right now is actually measuring somebody's uncued walking, figuring out what their normal cadence is, and then finding songs that are close to that or that are naturally 10% above that, right? percent below that, rather than adjusting the same song and changing its tempo, mm-hmm. song that already matches it so that the tendency would be to sing it at that rate anyway. Right. That makes sense. And so what about, so cadence, you probably found a similar effect, right? Yep. It went up or down by 10%, depending right. on whether we increased or decreased the song tempo. Okay. And what about stride length though? What did you see there? Stride length didn't respond as much uh-huh. as the two. So there were some changes, but they were smaller, certainly, than the, the changes in the velocity or the cadence. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like, you know, when people were walking faster with the higher tempo, it was because they were taking more steps per minute, not necessarily because they were taking bigger steps. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very little change in the stride length compared to the others. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then you went a little deeper, right? And looked at the variability in stride length. Yeah. So we looked at variability in stride length, stride time, and single support time. And that's something that I think the previous literature hasn't really focused on. So while a lot of the literature around music or metronomes providing these external cues has been focused around velocity, cadence, and stride, but not the variability or the consistency. And so let's just step back a second, though. So why is it important for us to think about this variability or consider it? So the reason we think it's important is because there's a fair number of studies that have shown a relationship between variability and risk of falls. Mm -hmm. The more variable someone's gait is, the higher their fall risk. So in our minds, an intervention that's effective should not increase variability. Okay. And can you think of a good way clinically to measure variability of gait if you don't have a gait right? I mean, you could, you could do it with a simple video if you had a scale where you could tell the distance between the feet as they were taking steps and just measure each successive step or stride length. If you want to go really old school, you could do the ink on the feet, walking across an unrolled piece of butcher paper. We actually have a big bowl of butcher paper in the lab. You can do that, or you can use that paper and put lines on it and use those lines as the marks to see, you know, they they would have a tendency to probably step on the lines. But if you had lines in the scene somewhere that they weren't walking across, you could use those to sort of estimate Uh distance between successive footfalls. Yeah, it's tricky. I think we are also, I mean, it's sort of not very scientific, but I think we're also so well-trained at looking at gait and watching gait that I think therapists can get a pretty good sense of the decrease in variability of walking by good observation. I really like the idea of videoing too, because I think even 
if you can't quantify it, you can still like really see that that there is a difference in the right. variability of their gait. But I mean, how much change in variability did you see in these conditions? So it, it was a small change. So probably on the order of, you know, three, 3% or so. Yeah. So it would be hard to see with the eye. It would be hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. With the iometer. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and there are treadmills though that do some variability measurement. Yeah. If you have equipment like that, you could, you know, some, some instrumented treadmills could do that. They're also increasingly a number of different wearable sensor systems mm -hmm. access to something like that. Those can, some of those systems can determine stride length, stride time, those types of things. And you could look at variability. Right. I think it's just a good thing though, for us as clinicians to have on our radar, because as these things, you know, be, start to become available and a little bit more affordable. If your clinic is thinking about purchasing something and you recognize that being able to quantify somebody's variability could be helpful in determining their fall risk or if they're improving with your interventions, then I think it gives it a little bit more, you know, weight as to why you might invest in some of this stuff. So I think it's it's something good to, yeah. to consider. So what did you find with stride length variability in these different conditions? So what we found was not a whole lot of difference uh, in stride length variability based on tempo. So it didn't matter whether you slowed people down or sped them up so much, but what did matter was which condition they were in. So when they were listening to music, their variability went up compared to when they were just walking without any cues which again was not what we would want to see with an intervention because higher variability is associated with greater mm -hmm. fall risk. So here's this intervention that, you know, we've been using literally for decades and nobody's looked at variability very closely before. And again, it's a small change in variability. It's not like hugely worrisome. Like these people are definitely going to fall if we give them music. I don't want to present it in a way that's out of proportion, but it was striking to us because in contrast to that, the mental singing in particular, and especially for some of the other variability measures more related to timing than mm -hmm. to distance, mental singing actually was decreasing variability compared to walking without any cues. Mm -hmm. It's actually making people more consistent and potentially more mm -hmm. stable everyday walking pattern. Yeah, it, it kind of makes sense in a way, right? If you think about somebody's trying to match with an external cue that might be harder to do and there there are errors involved in that matching and so you're seeing that some variability in those errors versus when they're internally cueing themselves they might be able to sort of you know coordinate for lack of a better word better yeah i think that's true and i also think that they may just be able to match the conditions a little bit better you know so if you know suddenly someone comes you know walking toward them and they need to adjust a little bit or something like that that in a real world scenario it wouldn't be like oh my goodness the music is going to keep going at this pace and i've got to step at that pace mm -hmm. no matter what we're like okay i can shift my singing a little bit i can still stay matched to it and then once i'm past this challenge i can go back to what I was doing. So I think that that potential for adaptability mm -hmm. is also um, a good thing. And there have been some studies that have looked at 
giving people a straight metronome cue versus giving people a cue that's been manipulated so that it has some biological variability. So it's more like a biological signal and not just so uniform. Mm -hmm. The biologically variable cueing is actually more effective than just a straight uniform cue. So I think there is something about that biological variability in addition to the fact that if you're generating it yourself you have kind of a leg up in terms of being able to predict what's coming right and does this give us any hints into potentially neural circuitry involved here with mental singing potentially yeah so there's a couple of different theories about the different ways that music listening and music production activate areas of the brain that are also involved in other types of motor control mm -hmm. There are suggestions that using these cues, particularly among people with Parkinson's, might engage circuitry that involves the cerebellum looping through the thalamus up to the cortex and sort of bypassing the basal ganglia, which are more impacted by Parkinson's. It's somewhat theoretical, and I don't think there are any conclusive studies right now that say that's exactly what's happening. That's actually something that we're also working on right now is adding imaging to this and trying to understand when somebody is moving to music versus when they're mentally singing and moving to that rhythm. Are there truly different areas of the brain that are activated? Mm -hmm. They align with what we would predict based on the existing literature or not. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, so we were just getting ready to have our first participant come in March and then that didn't happen. And then nope. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it will happen before the end of this calendar year, but. <laughs> yeah, so tricky. Got it all, all ready to go. All right, and then in terms of other variabilities, you looked at stride time and single limb support. And what, what did you guys find there? Yeah, so those were the measures that I think were particularly striking where especially when people were walking at their preferred pace or even 10% faster, that they showed increases in variability or, or no change in variability when the music was presented. But when they were singing, and in particular, most strikingly mentally singing, they were the least variable and the most consistent from step to step. So the mental singing really seemed to solidify their timing. Mm -hmm in ways that the external music did not. Mm -hmm. And single limb support? The single limb support looked pretty similar to the stride time. Mm -hmm. So again, mental singing really solidified that and made it most consistent. Right, which makes sense, right? Because yeah. they're, they're tied together. Right. And, you know, is there anything else like any other suggestions that you have for clinicians that might read a paper like this and want to try to apply some of these ideas i think one is just to talk to patients so we were pretty surprised by the folks coming in for this study you know a couple people were like oh yeah i do this all the time <laughs> yeah. oh, well leave it to us to take you know all this time and energy to figure it out we should have just asked you yeah right <laughs> And they'll have a song that they prefer mm -hmm. because it's a good pace for them or it's something that's very familiar or it might have good memories associated with it. There are different reasons that people pick particular songs. So I think just 
first asking them, have you ever tried this? What do you think about it? Are you willing to try it? What songs do you like? You know, that kind of stuff to help them figure out what might be good songs for them and also helping them find opportunities to practice. I think your example of, you know, singing with them in the hospital is wonderful, you know, and encouraging them to, to also practice the mental singing maybe while they're with you so that when they're discharged and they have to do it on their own. Right. That tool in their toolbox. Right. Other than having only sung aloud and now thinking, oh, like I can't do that right now because I'm walking down the street. Right. And what would you say to clinicians that are mostly using a metronome right now? Should we just throw out our metronomes? No, I wouldn't say throw out the metronome. (laughs) Most of us have them as apps on our phones, so we're not going to throw our phones out, but. No. And I, I mean, I think there's, there's clearly benefits to metronome or music still. I'm not saying that they're not helpful or that, that singing should be used to the exclusion of those things. I think that they're probably not as enjoyable. Right. But it is, you know, very standardized. It's something that's readily available with different apps and things. I think that they could be useful for training people to be able to find a beat mm-hmm. and to synchronize with the beat, mm-hmm. which I think is, is a skill that's pretty variable among people. I mean, you have some people who are spot on and other people who just don't seem to know there's even a beat happening. Right. Um, so I would say, you know, there's nothing any clearer than a metronome versus having a, a rhythm buried within music mm-hmm. might be a good starting point to help train people to be able to better synchronize. And then there are people who just aren't going to sing no matter what. I know very few people, but I do know a few people who just don't like music. Right. So they may prefer the metronome. Right. The other thing is some people just respond better to some things than others. So, you know, what I found is that just that some people just respond well to the metronome, but then, and maybe it's because they have that nice clear beat. And then once you transition to music, even if it's at a similar cadence, it's just not as good or they fall apart. So I think that there's just different modalities work for different people. And maybe with enough practice with the metronome, then, and they've trained themselves on listening for that beat, then transitioning to music might make sense or be easier Mm -hmm. for folks. So one other thing I wanted to ask about in this group that you studied here is that there was nobody with any kind of cognitive involvement yet. And have you started to consider how this might go down with people that do have some cognitive involvement? Yes, we actually just got a grant two days ago. Congratulations. (laughs) And it's going to be with people who have Parkinson's plus dementia. And we're going to try to see, you know, can these people use these techniques, both singing aloud and mentally singing? And are the the changes in walking similar among those folks who do have dementia compared to the people who have Parkinson's and no dementia? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we, you know, if that is successful, we'd be interested in taking it uh, even more broadly to encompass other types of cognitive impairment. But we're, we're so strongly positioned 
within our environment to be able to recruit people with Parkinson's and people with Parkinson's plus dementia. And we have a much more difficult time recruiting people with Alzheimer's disease, for example. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to sort of start in an area where we know we can recruit enough people in a timely manner to see whether this is effective or not. And, you know, there's a, a fair amount of literature looking at different types of dementia to suggest that there is something about music that sort of unlocks something in people, brings them back. Right. Enlivens them and something that they have an easier time recalling than other things. Sometimes, you know, a familiar song, they'll be able to spout all the lyrics. Right. So we're hopeful that that bodes well for people being able to use familiar songs in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. So I love that you guys have all these studies. I mean, as soon as we, we say we want to like, I wonder what's (laughs) happening in the brain. You're like, well, we're doing an imaging study. (laughs) You know, we're asking about dementia and you're doing a study of that. So it's awesome. And we definitely will be looking forward to more stuff on this coming out of your lab and your group. And it's very exciting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to do too, because, you know, it's not just drudgery for the people who are involved in the study. They get to come in and sing and Mm -hmm. just have a little fun with it. So yeah, yeah, that's great. So speaking of fun, Gammon, we like to ask people what they do when they're not working. So what do you like to do for fun when you're not working? Uh, I like to run and I like to read books. I'm in the book of the month club. So a random book every month (laughs) and we have a a son who's 16 who's a musician so we like to listen to him and go to his performances that's great we enjoy to like hiking and camping yep a lot of hiking and camping usually in this podcast yeah it's be a pt thing yeah and, but, you know, and a few people talking about books, but do you have a recommendation of a book that you've enjoyed recently? Uh, one I just finished is called The Beauty in Breaking. Hmm. And it's uh, written by an African-American emergency room physician about her experiences throughout her career. It was quite good. Yeah, that sounds great. I've been listening to books on tape. Mm-hmm when I hike some of the time. Oh, nice. Yeah. That, and I that's just, efficiency right there. Yeah. <laughs> or distraction, you know, because, <laughs> because I'm going so far, I need, I need a little distraction, but, but I will look for that one. Cool. Well, Gammon, it's been great to have you on 4D. We have really enjoyed this conversation. I think our listeners will find it interesting and hopefully we're excited to go back to the clinic tomorrow and try some of this stuff. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Parm. And I'm really excited to hear that you're singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat with your patients. All right. And we hope that you'll, you'll are willing to come back in the future for those future studies that we talked about. We're excited to hear about those. I'd be happy to do that. Great. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks to our volunteers, Rose Gallagher, Casey Houlihan, and Stacey Pepitone. This podcast was produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. And our podcast team includes 
Sarah Crandall, Adriana Carey, Mira Pierce, and Katie McGraw. Subscribe to our newsletter at the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And if you liked this podcast, please share it with a colleague or friend. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. We do bloopers. <laughs> because I'll screw it up and, um, you know, you... Uh, well, congratulations on the new baby and uh, not having to edit this. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Well, the one thing that might bode well for us with the internet is that I have no kids here right now. That helps. You yeah. want to suck up the Wi-Fi. Exactly. Is there anything you need me to do before we officially begin, like get my dog out of the room in case he barks or... Um, I mean, that will make for a good blooper. Oh, it would. Okay, well, I'll let him stay then. Um, yeah, he snores quite a bit, so that might also be in the background. And my awesome paper won an award. <laughs> I'll do this ahead of time. People will think I'm opening a beer. On it's a seltzer, though, I promise. Our podcast team includes, and you could just, like, Oh, that's a good idea. Okay. You know, like on the daily when they list like 18 people at the end, we are just going to start with four or five.